Well, this is the uh, third of the churches uh, in Revelation that Jesus speaks to, the church in Pergamum. And uh, like Smyrna, we don't really know much about uh, the church at Pergamum apart from what we read here. This uh, letter to the Pergamum church might feel a little, maybe a little bit harder to grasp or understand than the others. Uh, we may not see at first glance the connection between the portrait of Jesus, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, and then the promise at the end, I will give some of the hidden manna and the white stone with a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's think about that. Let's think about the portrait of Jesus at the beginning and we'll see the connection with the promise at the end. Uh, We saw back in chapter 1 that the sword coming from Jesus' mouth symbolises his authority as the judge. His words, which are the word of God, are true. They're piercing like the two-edged sword in the book of Hebrews that cuts right to the heart and to bones and ligaments. They're true and piercing. As the judge, he alone has the authority to pronounce the verdict of guilty or not guilty and he alone has the authority to administer God's justice. The word of God exposes all things. He sees all things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. In the Old Testament, prior to the kings, the rulers of Israel were called judges. Not because they necessarily sat in a courtroom, but because they went out to fight for Israel. They administered God's justice by defeating Israel's enemies with the sword. And by doing that, they then kept God's people secure and safe. The imagery of the sword is right through the Bible. The first mention of the sword, uh, well before any human-made swords, is the flaming sword, guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden, preventing the man and woman from re-entering into the holy place. As we've seen, we saw with uh, Ephesians, the church in Ephesians, this sword speaks of the judgment of God that faces anyone who in an unworthy manner tries to come into God's holy presence. This is one of the foundational stories of the Old Testament, of the Bible. So we need to keep that image of the fiery sword at the entrance to Eden in our minds as we do a brief journey through the use of the sword in the Old Testament. In biblical times, the sword was the deadliest of weapons known to man or invented by man. And so it became, the word sword became a symbol of war. The phrase struck by the edge of the sword occurs many, many times throughout the Old Testament, meaning that people were attacked or invaded or conquered by an an enemy with devastating results. 
It's also quite common in the Old Testament for the actions of the armies of the nations, both Israel and the Gentiles, to be described as the action of God's judgment. All armies, both Israel armies and their enemies, were all in the hands of the Lord. The outcome of every battle ultimately was decided by God. So Israel invading Canaan wasn't just the Lord giving them the land that he'd promised, but it was also his judgment upon the inhabitants of Canaan who were involved in atrocious things like child sacrifice. He used foreign armies throughout Israel's history during the time of the judges and the kings to, uh, to bring discipline upon his people for their idolatry. Uh, and then ultimately the judgment of the northern kingdoms of uh, Assyria that invaded Israel and then Babylon which brought judgment upon the people of Judah because of their idolatry. So Israel was taught very early on in their history that the sword of the armies of the nations are actually the sword of the Lord himself. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, see now that I, even I, I am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. So Israel was faced all the time with this question, are we going to act as God's people or are we going to, through our idolatry and our rebellion, are we going to put ourselves in the place of being actually God's enemies and then face the judgment because of that. So the sword is a symbol of God's judgment upon the nations, but not just the nations, also upon individuals. Psalm 7, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. It's not just the nation that is judged, but each person is morally accountable before God. Now, knowing this sovereignty of God over the nations and the Lord's commitment to bring about justice gives confidence to God's people to call out to him for justice. So, David says in uh, Psalm 17, he he, speaking of the Lord, is, um, no sorry, this is David's enemy. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in his ambush. Arise, O Lord, comfort him, subdue him, con- sorry, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. So the sword of the Lord is something to be feared by his enemies 
but it brings great comfort to those who know him, who know that they are protected by him. As we know, any weapon can be used for attack or defence. A sword in the hand of an evil person is reason for great fear, but in the hands of a good person who is coming to our defence, it's a reason for comfort and relief. So seeing Jesus with a sharp two-edged sword tells us that while his enemies have every reason to fear because of his judgment, we have every reason to take comfort because he is our strong defender. And he defends us in two ways. Firstly, at the cross. There, the sword of the Lord fell on him. He came under the justice, the judgment that we deserve. Zechariah 13 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now Jesus quotes this verse when he's telling his disciples that when he's arrested, they will all fall away and abandon him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. As he goes to the place where he must go alone to face the sword of God's judgment upon our sin. So in Jesus we can know that the judgment of God in terms of his judgment against his enemies, as far as we're concerned, that judgment has finished. The fiery sword of judgment at the entrance to Eden has been extinguished and the way is now open for us to come back into the holy presence of God. But secondly, Jesus now stands as the gatekeeper to guard the holy place and to ensure that evil isn't allowed to come back in and harm his people. That was one of the first jobs given to Adam. He was put in the garden to work it and to keep it and that word keep there really means guard, protect, keep evil out of the garden. He failed in that task, didn't he? Because he allowed the serpent to come in and to tempt them. So when they were cast out, God placed his own guards at the entrance, the cherubim. Now, Jesus is the last Adam, so he succeeds where the first Adam failed. He's defeated the serpent and now he stands on guard with drawn sword to stop any evil coming in and harming or leading his people astray. And this imagery of the sword coming out of his mouth, that comes from Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands. This is the the servant of the Lord speaking. Give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. So Jesus has become the sword of the Lord. 
the means by which God defeats his enemies, rescues his people, brings them back into the safety and the security of the walls of the, te- of the temple of God's house. So, replace in your mind the image of the sword keeping people out of Eden, replace it with an image of God's people back in the holy place being kept safe by Jesus. That's an image that we'll come up with, come and see a few times through the book of Revelation. Hopefully now you can begin to see the connection then with the promise at the end of the letter. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's the connection there? Well, both of these objects, the hidden manna and the white stone, speak of access to a secret, hidden, holy, safe place. The first is an imagery from the scriptures and the second is uh, an image from the Gentile world. The hidden manna, it's a portion of manna that was taken from Israel's time in the desert when God provided their daily bread from heaven through the 40 years of their wandering. It was put in a jar and it was stored in the most holy place right next to the Ark of the Covenant containing the stone tablets of the covenant. So, to partake of this hidden manna, it was hidden because it was in a jar, but it was also hidden behind the curtain. To partake of this manna, you'd have to go right in, behind the curtain, right up to God's holy presence. And as you ate of that manna, you would effectively be dining with God himself. Now, this is a concept that would have been unthinkable even for the high priest. He was only allowed to go in behind the curtain once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. He wasn't allowed to open the jar and eat the manna. For him to take the manna and eat it would have been considered sacrilege, an offence against the holiness of God, an outrage that a man should consider himself worthy to eat with God. But Jesus, our great high priest, he's opened the way for us to be so bold as to come before the throne of God, which we now know to be the throne of grace. Not to bow and to scrape as unworthy servants, but to sit and eat as beloved children with Jesus by our side as the Father welcomes us into his home, into this secret, secure, holy and safe place. Now, a similar idea is conveyed by the white stone with a new name on it. In the Greco-Roman world, uh, Olympic champions, and we spoke about them last week as well, they would be given special access to places and to activities that normally only the rich and the noble people would have. Maybe a little bit like the modern practice of giving 
someone who's a champion, in some way a key to the city. Their ticket into these special privileged places was in the form of an engraved precious stone which obviously they would need to keep safe and secret so that no one could see the secret word that was on the stone so they couldn't then make counterfeits and then before you know it the whole town is there with their white stones. So the white stone with a new name is also symbolic of that access that Jesus gives us into the privileged place where only those with special honour are allowed. The new name is his name. So it gives us access into his home, which is the Father's home. Now, having said all that, it's important for us to recognise that that information about the white stone given to Olympians, we don't know that from the Bible. Uh, We know that from other extra-biblical sources. And we do have to be cautious about being too dogmatic about an interpretation of scripture purely based on archaeology or some other source outside the Bible. Uh, If something is only just recently discovered that says, oh, now we can understand that verse, uh, we have to say, well, what about the millions of Christians in the last 2,000 years who never knew what that verse means? So, uh, it it may well be that that was an image that uh, would have resonated with the people in Pergamum, um, but there is another more biblical connection there as well. So, some Bible scholars have have suggested that instead of Uh, referring to this Olympian ticket, it was a reference to the Urim and Thummim, precious stones that were used by the high priest to discern God's will. So, for instance, a king would come to him, has to make a significant decision, do I go to war or not? And the Urim and Thummim would be used, we don't know exactly how, but they would be used to give a yes or a no. So we don't know exactly how they were used. We don't know what they looked like. We don't know if there was anything engraved on them or not or whether they were different, two different colours. But if this is what is meant by the white stone, some have suggested that one stone was white, one was black. The white meant yes, the black meant no. It still conveys the idea of being given access because you'd have to come into the sanctuary to consult with the priest. You would be given a privileged knowledge of God's secret will that only you know. His will that he tells to his family, not to slaves. What does that then mean for the church in Pergamum and for us today? I think I might in the user, I think I might have said Smyrna, but Pergamum. Well, Jesus, as the one with a sharp two edged sword, says, I know where you dwell. With every other church, he says, I know your works, or as we saw with Smyrna, I know your tribulation. 
But here he makes a point of saying, I know where you live, in a place where Satan's throne is. This is probably a reference to the great Pergamum altar, which was built by the Greeks as a monument to their great victories in the uh, 2nd century BC, so it had been around for a couple of hundred years at this point, and it contained extensive artworks depicting the Greek gods fighting and conquering giants and monsters to gain dominion over the heavens. And as you can see by this reconstruction, it's kind of shaped like a seat, like a throne. Just like the Ephesians, who were living in the shadow of that great temple of Artemis, the people of Pergamon, they live in the shadow of this great monument to the Greek gods, the complete antithesis of everything that Christians believed, which is why Jesus calls it Satan's throne. Humanly, there's no more dangerous place to live than the very place where Satan has his throne. And they knew that firsthand because one of them, called Antipas, we don't know anything about this person, he had been killed for faithfully standing firm and proclaiming the gospel. We struggle, don't we, to get our heads around the idea that proclaiming the gospel is a dangerous thing. Friday night, some of us saw some of the, uh, the issues that we're beginning to face here in Australia, but it's, we may face opposition and ridicule, but we don't think of it as dangerous. For us, it's simply something that might cause us a bit of embarrassment or maybe just a degree of inconvenience. And partly because we live in a culture where the gospel and the Christian faith is seen as just one of the many options that people can choose. If they think they can fit Jesus into all of their other lifestyle choices, all of their other values choices, and say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take Jesus on and just kind of fit him in with the rest of my life. So sometimes we can offer Jesus in that way. Jesus is the add-on that will enhance people's well-being or enjoyment of life instead of the one whom if we actually follow him, it may mean the loss of everything because he calls us to turn from all of our idols and to worship him alone. The Greeks, they love to add extra gods to their already large collection of gods. And so they would have been quite happy with a Jesus who could just be put there as one among the many. But the Gospel proclaims that there is only one true God and all other gods must be rejected. To become a Christian in the first century meant not only turning to Jesus but turning from idols. And that's why the Gospel was offensive because it brought the gods of the day into disrepute. It called them out for what they actually are, instruments of Satan himself, used to tempt and lure people away from the true and living God. Well, the Gospel we proclaim today should do the same, shouldn't it? 
It's just that the gods and the idols just take different forms today than what they did then. But proclaiming the gospel necessarily involves calling people to turn from idols to worship the true God. It's been reported that Christians who live in countries where Christians are persecuted look at us in the West where we currently have it so easy and say, they don't say, you're so fortunate and blessed to be not under persecution. We wish we could be like you. Instead, they ask, are you really preaching the gospel if it's not causing you to be persecuted? They wonder whether we've actually caved into our culture and and watered down our message to try and fly under the radar and stay safe. An Iraqi Christian wrote after he had lost everything when ISIS invaded his town, one of the greatest challenges you face as Christians in the West is that you're more in love with life than you are Jesus and it makes you unwilling to die for him. The Christians at Pergamum, as well as many today, live in a very dangerous place but Jesus says, I know where you live. Even though Satan dwells in their city, they can rest assured that Jesus stands by their side with his sharp two-edged sword, fighting for them, defending them against their enemies. So what if they live next to this imposing monument to the might and power of the world and all its gods? Because the true dwelling place Their true dwelling place is in the house of God before his throne and no evil can ultimately reach us if we are there. The church at Pergamon was standing firm against these external threats, refusing to compromise with the world, refusing to just present Jesus as one among many options available amongst the smorgasbord of Greek gods, even if it cost them their lives. But Jesus says, I have a few things against you. While they were on guard from the threats from the outside, they were not being diligent about the threats from the inside. Those within the church who were bringing false teaching, who were threatening to rob them of this gospel that they were proclaiming. Now the second of these, the Nicolaitans, or the victory people I dealt with, Uh, when we looked at Ephesus. So we'll focus on those spoken of here in verse 14, those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now this will require us to do a little bit of revision of when we saw the story of Balaam when we were in the book of Numbers. Balaam was a Edomite witch doctor or false prophet. He was called on by Balak, the king of Moab, to bring down a curse on Israel as they passed by on their way to the promised land. Now the Lord made it clear to Balaam as he set out that there would be no way that he would be allowed to curse Israel since the Lord had determined to bless them and to keep his promises to them. Do you remember how he did this? He sent his angel who stood before Balaam with a drawn sword. 
Three times Balaam's donkey saw the angel until the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword, with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed down and fell on his face. Now Balaam and Balak tried three times unsuccessfully to curse Israel. Balaam could only pronounce a blessing. So their plan to attack Israel head on externally was a failure. They couldn't use their sorcery and their witchcraft to manipulate the Lord and make him turn away from his people because the Lord stood with sword drawn, always ready to guard and protect them. Now, most Sunday school versions of the story end there, but there's more to the story. Balak and Balaam employed a new strategy. If they couldn't get the Lord to turn away from his people, he would try to get the people to turn away from the Lord. Immediately after Balaam returned from trying to curse Israel, we're told, when Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So instead of an overt external attack, this was a covert internal attack through infiltration. These uh, daughters of Moab probably would have been temple prostitutes sent by Balak on the advice of Balaam who deliberately turned the Israelites towards sexual immorality and idolatry. And right through the Old Testament, as we'll see uh, in the future, uh, sexual immorality or adultery and idolatry are always together in some way because idolatry is committing adultery against our true husband, the Lord. Now, this is often Satan's strategy, not only to blatantly attack from outside, but to subtly undermine from inside. Most of the warnings of the New Testament about false teaching are about people who are inside the church, not outside it. You may have had the Mormon missionaries or the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door. Or maybe someone from a religious group has approached you in the street and maybe it's made you a bit unsettled because you don't really know who they are or what they believe. But we don't actually have to be too concerned about those groups apart from being genuinely concerned for the people who are caught up in their deception, believing a false gospel. Most of those groups already by their own choice have separated themselves, have placed themselves outside the church by claiming all the churches are wrong and we're the only true church. So if anyone says that, it doesn't matter what they believe, they've already separated themselves. What we must be on our guard against is those within the broad boundaries of the Christian church who distort or water down the truth of the gospel and lead people not into a true worship of the Father but into something else that might have the veneer of Christian worship 
but in fact is another form of idolatry. I'm not going to go into too much detail on that today because there'll be plenty of other times as we go through Revelation to, uh, to think through what worldly worship uh, looks like. But for now we need to see what Jesus has to say about idolatry in the church. There's no question that those committing this idolatry need to repent, but see how Jesus calls the church and its leaders to repent in verse 16. Repent for allowing these people to remain in there and to continue with their teaching. The elders were supposed to be shepherds of the flock, guarding them against wild beasts, being the the gate in the sheepfold. They were supposed to be representatives of Jesus by being the guards who keep the evil out. So Jesus warns if they don't do their job, then he'll step in and do it himself with the sword of his mouth. Exactly what that will look like, we're not told. But Balaam's story in Numbers uh, didn't finish with sending the Moabite women to lead Israel astray. The book of Joshua makes a point of mentioning his fate. Balaam, the son of Beor, the one who practised divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. The Lord made sure that his justice was carried out against Balaam on behalf of his people. In that case, using as his instrument the judgement of the sword of the Israelites as they came into the land. And Jesus says he will also make sure that justice is carried out on behalf of his church. If not through the means of church discipline, then directly by his sovereign actions. Jesus is more passionate about the church than we will ever be. The church is his bride for whom he laid down his life. He is determined to fight for us, to protect us, to refine us, to discipline us, to clothe us in the beautiful garments of his own righteousness, to wash our feet, to crown our heads, to bring us into his own home where we can call his father our father. The way he goes about that at times will be painful. He'll confront us with our sin, with our idolatry that defiles us and pollutes us and he'll come to us in loving, disciplining judgement to purge away our uncleannesses and our compromise. Why is the wider church in the state it's in today? It seems to be dying, it seems to be struggling, it seems to be lifeless and we need to say, well, we're, we're part of the wider church. We can't just say, we've got it right, all those churches out there. Otherwise, we end up being like the cult, don't we? It's not merely because we've forgotten how to grow and to build the church. That's Jesus' job, not ours. It's because we keep losing sight of the gospel. We keep taking our eyes off Jesus and fixing them on ourselves. We turn to worldly ways and worldly methodologies instead of his word and in the name of acceptance and inclusion 
we tolerate forms of teaching and worship that seem appealing because it seems like it'll be attractive to the world but in fact Jesus looks at it and he says he hates it and will in due due time will come with the sword of his mouth and surgically remove it. It's not because he's a a power-loving dictator or a megalomaniac. It's because he's a jealous husband who loves his bride. He knows that the pain of discipline will ultimately bear fruit of glory when we, as his bride, stand side by side in the new creation, dressed in white, purified, clean, acceptable, holy, with him before the throne of his Father. Let's pray.